to a subject that he has talked about repeatedly, okay, and it's suffering. <laughs> suffering, in this case, for being a Christian, because that's what his friends who he is writing to were experiencing. And of course, in today's world, the way our current culture is going, you, know, you may experience the same, suffering because you are a Christian. Or your suffering may take a, a, a different form, I mean, you know the well-worn phrase of uh, comment by Benjamin Franklin, okay, that only two things in life are certain, which are? Death and taxes. Okay, what about suffering? As Don Carson, the American theologian, wrote, all you have to do is live long enough and you'll suffer. Now, sure, you could probably find someone somewhere who has just sailed through life without experiencing sorrow. I doubt very much they're in the room. And um, uh, all of us experience times and seasons that we wish we were not having to go through. Maybe even times when you wish you were no longer here, when that life was over. And I think because of that, what Peter says here is relevant for all that kind of suffering, as well as the suffering that these guys were experiencing. I once heard a pastor say that the job of a pastor is to prepare his people for suffering. And in his book on suffering, How Long, O Lord, Don Carson writes... This is a book of preventive medicine. And he goes on, we do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. But he says, when that happens, if our thinking about suffering or about God are faulty, he says, the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over. In other words, You've got to get your thinking about suffering right before you find yourself in the midst of it. Okay, which is why Peter writes what he writes here. This is a letter of preventive medicine. I hope as well it will be healing medicine as well. Okay, so four things we're going to look at. What your suffering is, why you're suffering, how to suffer well, and why you should suffer well, why you should embrace it. Okay, first point then, what your suffering is. Okay, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. And those two words, fiery trial, translate one Greek word, pyrosis, the act of burning. Okay, so don't be surprised, Peter is saying, if you are going through something that feels like everything around you is being burnt up. If it feels like you are experiencing a fiery trial, a trial by fire. And for them, they are suffering because of their Christian faith. Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, but it's not limited to that. Look at verse 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will. So any time you suffer, okay, any time you do what's right and it costs you, 
Anytime you are facing grief or loss over whatever it is that you have lost, anytime that life is hard and God is allowing it to happen, which is any time, you are in a fiery trial, Peter says. Okay, where is he getting that image from? I mean, what do you think of when you hear that word pyrosis? Pyro, pyrotechnics? Fireworks? Pyromaniac? Someone who goes around burning everything down? Because those, those words come from this word. Okay, Peter's got a different image in mind. Okay, if you turn back to chapter one, he says, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And so once again, Peter is taking us by the hand and walking us into the goldsmith or the silversmith's workshop and saying, just take a look. Look at the craftsman as he applies fire to the metal, as he melts the metal in the crucible. That is what you're going through. That's what your suffering is. When you suffer because you're a Christian or as a Christian, you are going through a purifying fire. So listen, it's not just that you didn't get that job. It's not just that your paper got rejected. It's not just that that person that you are, interesting, you are interested in turned you down. It's not just that you're facing difficult decisions at work or a medical diagnosis that you didn't want to hear. Your suffering is all of that, but it's more, Peter says. It's an act of burning, like the silversmith purifying silver. Why would God put you through that? Second point, why you're suffering. What you're suffering is, why you're suffering? Verse 12 again. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Okay, so suffering is a test, but it's not a pass or fail test. It's a test of what you're made of, of what matters most to you, of what your identity or your significance is built on, of what you're trusting in, the kind of mixture that there is in your heart. You see, these guys are facing criticism and insults from their family and their friends and their neighbours because of their faith. Why is that a test? Because, like fire melts the silver and brings the impurities up to the surface, so suffering brings to the surface what matters most to them. Is it their reputation or Christ? Or maybe you feel overlooked at work or badly treated by your supervisor. Maybe a friend has hurt you deeply and it is getting to you. How are any of those things a test? Because what your identity is rooted in is being brought up to the surface. Or maybe you are single and someone who is not a Christian is interested in you and you are interested in them, but you know that you shouldn't be. And that hurts. How is that a test? 
Because the heat is revealing the mixture that is in your heart, the good and the bad, the silver and the impurities, of how you trust that God and his ways and his word are good, but you also want this relationship. And you think that would be better. And so suffering is a test because it exposes what I really think about life where my hope and my security really lie, where I get my identity from. And it is purifying because in the heat, things begin to separate out. Things become clear. What's gold and what's dross? What's the silver to be kept? And what are the impurities to be scraped off? But of course, not all suffering is like that. Verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Now, it's not so obvious in the English, okay, but in the the original, Peter groups the first three together, murderer, thief, and evildoer, but he has the last one being a meddler out on its own. Why do that? Why have three and this one? Because they are unlikely to suffer as murderers, thieves, or evildoers. And neither are you, because you're nice, polite people. Though if you kill someone's reputation at work, or if you rob their work through plagiarism, you can bring down trouble on your own head. But murderer, thief, evildoer, we tend not to do that stuff. But what about being a meddler? What about being a busybody? Because that gets a bit closer to home, doesn't it? And maybe some of them were facing insults, not because of loyalty to Christ, but because maybe they're facing insults because they'd been just a bit insulting themselves. Maybe they'd been a bit too quick to point out the sins of their non-Christian neighbours. Maybe they had been a bit of a busybody, intruding themselves into people's lives in a way that they shouldn't. Or maybe in their enthusiasm to convert people, they had crossed over some social boundaries. Whatever it is, Peter's point is, listen, if you are going to suffer, make sure that your only crime is that you are a Christian. Because you can get a speeding ticket and go just taken one for Christ, but you haven't. You've just gone and broken the law. Okay, and yet, even suffering that we have brought upon ourselves, if we let it do its work of sifting and separating, even that can have a purifying effect on our lives because it makes us focus on some hard questions doesn't it why why did I do that what was going through my mind that made me behave like that and so the fire of suffering has a way of exposing our idols the things that we are looking to instead of God for comfort for identity for security for pleasure or for just feeling okay about ourselves And it's because that is what suffering is and does that Peter says, verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what would be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? 
Okay, so Peter is looking down the line of history and he is saying, he's looking down the line of history, he's saying, look at the final judgment and see how that is being brought forward to today. Because the final judgment, the day of judgment, has already begun for the household of God. Now, you might hear that and say, what? Hang on a sec. I thought if we were Christians, we weren't going to be judged. I mean, doesn't Paul say, for whoever is in Christ, there is no condemnation? Yeah, absolutely. If you're a Christian, at the last judgment, you will be declared not guilty. No charge to answer. Because the last judgment will be a time of separating out. Those who trust Jesus and are, in, are, and are in him, and those who don't trust him and aren't in him. But it is also a time of separation of us from our sin, us from our idols, us from all of our impurities. A time when we will be told, hey, Martin, you can leave that at the door. You won't be needing that here. Because just like you can get these areas that are signed smoke-free zone, so the new heavens and the new earth are going to be a sin-free zone. There's going to be a separating out of us from our impurities. And Peter is saying, and that final judgment work of purifying and sorting and sifting in our lives has already begun. It has been brought into the present and it can feel painful and it can feel like you are in a crucible of fire. So what is it gonna feel like in eternity for those who don't trust Christ and who aren't in Christ? Verse 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? And the answer is, you don't want to go there. You don't want to know. But what you do want to know is, how can I come through trials in better shape than I went into them, not least so that I can be a better witness for those who don't yet believe in Christ? Third point then, how to suffer well. Okay, what it is? why we go through it, and how to suffer well in it. Because not everyone does, do they? Sadly, if we're honest. If someone can face a period of suffering, and they can become embittered and resentful, and their faith becomes just an empty shell, or they leave the faith altogether. While other people go through fire, and they come out shining like silver, and their faith is stronger, and they're more humble, they're more full of joy, and they're more grateful to Christ. And people who are watching go, man, I wish I had her faith. I, I, I wish I had her joy, her peace, her poise. What makes the difference between those two people? Well, I think Peter highlights six attitudes that explains some of it. Number one, know who you are. If you want to come through it, know who you are. Verse 12, beloved. That's who you are. That's who they were to Peter. 
It's who they and we are to God. That is your identity. You are beloved. But when the temperature in your life is rising and it feels like your reputation or that relationship or your job or your health are going up in smoke, you can question, really? Does he really love me? If he did, why is he letting this happen? And Peter is saying, yes, he loves you. And it is precisely because you are beloved that he lets purifying trials come. And we think, seriously? Well, the writer to the Hebrews explains why. Okay, he switches the metaphors, however, from being in the fire to being a parent, which if you're a parent, probably sometimes feels like exactly the same thing. Okay? Hebrews 12, 6 to 11. The Lord disciplines the one he loves. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, I think anyone with an ounce of common sense knows that if a parent really loves their child, they are going to discipline him or her, in our case. And our girls used to complain bitterly okay, because we were strict. Okay, no sweets, no TV, in bed by six, and immediate obedience. It was like growing up in a Soviet gulag. <laughs> now, now they go, oh man, I, I mean, they still complain about the sweets, okay? But now they go, oh man, if, if I ever have kids, I'm going to do it the same way. I am going to rule them with a rod of iron. Okay, what made the difference? Serving in Sunday school, looking after your kids. Okay, that, 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 that's a joke, or oh, a joke, joke. Okay, but... I don't want any emails, okay, that's a joke. Okay, but there is nothing like a bit of real-world experience to tell you, hey, if kids are going to flourish, they need boundaries. They need discipline. There are going to be some attitudes and behaviours that are going to have to be confronted and changed for their good. And the writer to the Hebrews is saying, yeah, and for our good too. And the Lord uses hard things in our lives so that we grow in Christ-likeness. And he does it because he loves us. Okay, but notice something else about being loved. Because when he calls them beloved, verse 12, it's plural. He's talking to them as a church. He's talking to them as a family. He's talking to them as a community. And when you're in the fire, it can feel very lonely. And Peter is saying, yep, and we are beloved together. So don't withdraw if you're the one suffering and don't withdraw from the person who is suffering. Be a part of a community, a beloved community that suffers well together. Because you're not just beloved, you also belong, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, and that name Christian was coined as a sarcastic term by those opposed to these early believers. 
But what did they do with that? They adopted it as a badge of honor, didn't they? Because it said, yep, that's who, yeah, you're right. We are Christ's. We belong to him. And so do you. So do you. And whether you suffer because you're a Christian or as a Christian, if you're a Christian, you are a Christian. You are Christ's. You belong to him. You are beloved by him and you belong to him. And he will never let you go. However hot things get. Number two, don't be surprised. Know who you are, but don't be surprised. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. But we can be, can't we? We can be taken off guard by it. The heat starts going up, fires start breaking out, and we can begin to think this should not be happening. And you're right. Life should not be like this. But when you express that, what are you expressing? You're expressing a longing for Eden. You're expressing a longing for the world to be put right. Instantly, a longing that secular atheism has no explanation for. Because why shouldn't the world be like this? Why do you have that longing deep in your heart? But you do have it. And Christianity can tell you why you have it. But it also promises you that that one day that longing will be fulfilled. But that surprise at suffering may also be expressing something a little less positive. A mistaken view of the nature and the purpose of suffering, the what and the why. That it's for punishment, not purification. And man, this should not be happening to me because God shouldn't be punishing me. I've been good. I've gone to church. I've been kind to people. I've given to good causes. I've kept my side of the bargain. And God, frankly, I am more than a bit surprised that you would treat me this way. But that's the wrong way of thinking, isn't it? Because Christ has, the gospel tells us that Christ has already taken all of the punishment that we deserved. So when suffering comes, I don't need to be surprised by it as if God is punishing me because he's not. It's not punishment. So I don't need to become bitter or filled with doubt that I've got some unconfessed sin sin somewhere that has brought this upon me. Instead of being surprised, Number three, rejoice. Verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, are you really supposed to rejoice when your doctor tells you the worst? Or your boyfriend has left you? Or your company announces that it is closing the office? No, he's saying that when you suffer, you are sharing in the same arc of life as Jesus. Because with Jesus, it was always death, then resurrection, suffering, then glory. And so if you're a Christian and you are suffering now, you can rejoice because you know that glory is coming. Suffering first, 
glory second, is woven throughout Jesus' teaching. You've got to lose yourself to find yourself. You have to die to live. You have to give up if you want to keep. And the first should be last, but the last shall be first. It's why Paul said of Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Suffering first, then glory. It's why the writer to the Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Because with Jesus, it is always suffering first, then glory. So when you find yourself walking the same path as Jesus walked, the path of suffering, take heart, glory is coming. Number four, don't hide from suffering. Verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Now, shame is a powerful motivation for wrong behavior, isn't it, sadly? They are being mocked for being Christians. What would you feel like if you were on the receiving end of that? How, how do you respond? What, what do you feel inside in response to mocking? It's shame, isn't it? Because we want to be liked. We want to be in the in crowd. We want to be well thought of. And instead, we're being shamed. And what's the way out of that? Keep your head down. Don't talk about being a Christian. Hide. And Peter is saying, don't do that. Verse 16, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. But of course, you don't have to be suffering explicitly because you're a Christian to feel shame. It could be shame over your sin. It, it could be shame over what you are currently going through. It could be shame at the abuse you suffered in the past. And in shame, you withdraw and hide. And not just from others but from the work that God is wanting to do on your heart through suffering. So if you are suffering and shame is involved, remember who you are, beloved Christian. You're beloved and you belong. You are loved by him and you are owned by him. So allow him to use this pain to deal with what is lying underneath. Number five, avoid comfort sins. What's your go-to when you're stressed? Chocolate? Alcohol? Sex? Just blobbing in front of the TV, scrolling through the channels, that black box of Satan. And when you are in the crucible, the, there you are, revealing all my prejudices. Okay, when you are in the crucible, the danger is that we look for comfort, for a way out, a way to dampen the flames in all of the wrong places. It's another reason Peter lists those sins in verse 15. Let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Okay, sure you're not going to murder, 
But when you are being criticised, man, it can feel good to criticise back, can't it? Attack back. Or you are hurt and you're angry and that anger becomes a problem. And sure, you're not a thief, but what if your losses or your debts are mounting and you have access to this other source of income or some other person's money? Or drinking that glass of wine or two or three after a hard day? That's not evil doing, is it? Until it leads to it. And so if you want to come out of the test shining, watch out for comfort sins. You think, or the danger is we think, that they're water and they're going to dampen down the flames. What you discover is they're petrol and suddenly you're dealing with a whole load more problems. Finally, number six, finally of this point. Okay. Number six, entrust yourself. Now, a couple of years back, a couple of weeks back, a couple of months back, I had to have a, a minor procedure on my foot. And as my doctor was examining me, I kept on pulling back, okay, because it was painful. Was that helping him? No. Ultimately, was it helping me? No. So what did I have to do? I had to trust him. I had to put myself into his hands. Okay, look at verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful to creator. Okay, so to come out of this, having grown, you need to understand that God has a plan for what you are going through. That he is sovereign even over your suffering. Now, it is easy to believe that God is on his throne, that God is sovereign when life is good and the ground beneath you is solid. What about when the ground beneath you is shaking? Because then, if you think, this cannot be God's will for my life, that means that either he didn't see it coming, which means he can't see how it's going to end, what good is that for you? Or he didn't have the power to stop it, in which case he doesn't have the power to help you through it. Neither of which are any foundation to stand on when your life is shaking. But when you know that he is in sovereign control of everything, even the sins that are done against you, and he doesn't let anything happen to you, outside of his loving fatherly purpose for you, you can entrust yourself to him and you can stand the test. Okay, but then look what he says. Entrust there your souls to a faithful creator. So interestingly, it is the only time in the New Testament when creator is used of God. It's the only time when God is called creator in the New Testament. So why use it now? This is clearly a very unusual way of describing God in the New Testament. So why use it at all? Because in the midst of suffering, you can know that God is your creator. He is your maker. He made you. That means he knows you. 
He knows how you're wired. He knows where you're strong and he knows where you are weak. And he knows how much you can carry. Plus, he knows how to use this suffering to shape you and mould you for his glory and for your good. Because just like a silversmith heats the metal to craft and create something beautiful, so does God. And he does it with your life. And that means that you are in the safe and faithful hands of a master craftsman. Trust those hands. Okay, but to know how to suffer well is not quite the same as wanting to suffer well, is it? It's not quite the same as embracing it. So last point, why you should. Why you should embrace the work he wants to do in your life. And in danger of being repetitive and in danger of inflicting death by sermon points, okay, I want to give you three quickfire reasons why you should let him do the purifying work of suffering in your heart. Firstly, for the sake of your character. Paul writes, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. But what is character? You could divine it any number of ways, couldn't you? I would say it is a collection of your virtues and your vices. And in the fire of suffering, your vices will be burnt up and your virtues purified. I doubt that any of us want to grow old and bitter. If I were to take a straw poll, how many of you want to grow old and bitter? We've all seen people like that, and we don't want to be like that. While all of us want our characters to be growing. So Peter and Paul would say, so embrace the test of suffering as it separates your virtues from your vices. Secondly, do it for the sake of joy. Embrace his work for the sake of joy. You see, real deep happiness does not come by avoiding all suffering. That just leads to shallowness. Real deep happiness comes by coming out of the other side of suffering refined with your love and your gratitude for Christ deepened. It's why Peter says, verse 13, rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because finding joy in Christ, even in the midst of suffering, puts you on the path to even greater joy now in this life and in the one to come. Now again, if I were to take a straw poll, how many of you want to be miserable? None of us do, do we? None of us want to be miserable. So let the crucible of suffering burn up the sins that promise you happiness, but they always let you down. But thirdly, Embrace it because Christ did. And Jesus suffered not for his sins or to burn off his vices 
or to expose his idols, but for ours. And at the cross, he went through the ultimate fiery trial as the ultimate, the only truly innocent sufferer. That's why Peter says, you share in Christ's suffering. And he was cursed so that you might be beloved. He was disowned so that you might be owned. He was cast out so that you might be brought in. He was thrown into the fire so that you might come through it. No one else worships a God who suffered, but you do, because you're a Christian, and he suffered for you. So see his love for you, and it will be like a light shining in the darkness. Back in chapter two, Peter said that in Jesus' suffering, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Why should you do that? Because Jesus did it, and he did it for you. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your son, Lord, our example in suffering more than that, our Lord and our Savior who suffered for us. And Father, we are so grateful to you that he did. Father, thank you. Lord, that if he went through that for us, he will not let us go when we go through our sufferings. Instead, Father, help each one of us, Lord, to entrust ourselves to you and let you do this sifting, sorting work in our hearts. And Lord, even though uh, the day might seem dark, help us, O oh God, all of us, every one of us, Lord, to see your light shining in the darkness, the light of your love. And Lord, if today is a good day for us, if we're in a good phase of life, Father, help us to love those who are going through something different. Father, build us, I pray, into a family that suffers well together. And in his name we pray. Amen.